So, before the road trip proper begins, I want to satisfy my very deep curiosity about this strange uh, manifestation of the philosopher's cafe. I want to talk to its founder, uh, and she is a person called Lame Yebison. So now, we learn from Socrates that the path to wisdom and truth comes from asking the right questions. And on the face of it, <laughs> Lame Yebison doesn't make a very good Socrates. Uh, for a start, she's a woman. And Socrates was short and ugly. And Lame is neither of these things. But she is playing an immeasurably significant role in providing a platform where everyday Afrikaners can come together and ask the questions and seek the wisdom to find a new way in a new society. I sit down with Lame around her kitchen table in her home in Stellenbosch, the traditional home of Afrikaner thought. I want to hear from you, Lame, about the Philosopher's Cafe. The reason I want to know is because it strikes me as a fascinating concept. <laughs> I'm not aware of such a uh, thing existing anywhere else, and I doubt whether you uh, started a philosopher's cafe somewhere in England or Belgium, or well, France might be different, uh, whether you would get very far. <laughs> but from what I can see is that your meetings are very well attended. And so there is clearly a, a need uh, and an appreciation for this thing that you have created. And it is your creation, is it not? That's true, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, please tell me, how did it come about? And what is that need? Well, I have to tell you how it came about. And that is, first I had a cafe, a bistro, in the center of Pretoria on Church Square, called the Café Riche. And I did a lot of um, projects with IFAS, the French Institute. So one particular day I was with them in Newtown, in Johannesburg, and I saw the chap there, Henri Vercon. That was at the time when De Vez was the attaché, the cultural attaché there. And we did projects together. So he was boasting about that they have just now got together intellectuals and journalists. That was his grouping, intellectuals and journalists, together at the Gramadulas uh, restaurant at the time there. 
that belonged to Edwan, Edwan Nodir and his partner, Brian, I think, if I can remember correctly. So he was boasting, oh, La May, we've got this going now here. <clears throat> we have the intellectuals and the journalists and we meet once a week or so to have uh, discussions. So I said, good grief, this is marvelous. I'd love to have that something in Pretoria. But the problem with Pretoria is we have academics and not intellectuals. <laughs> so this is how it all started. So he said, wait a minute. I have to call a person who lives in Pretoria that we can talk about that. And that was Johan Rousseau at the time. That's how I met him, Johan Rousseau. He was uh, working in their library, doing research. So here comes Johan. I met him. He's as old as one of my oldest children, not, I think, Johan. Anyway, so Johan and I got together and we put it together. We decided, okay, let's get some discussions going at the Café Riche. And that is, in fact, how it started. So he was um, uh, identifying uh, people who can come and talk about issues. And I had the café, of course, so that's, that's how we started. So, and we did that for the, for the last... Friday evening of every month since 1998. In fact, it's 25 years this year. It's clearly been a success. Mm. So that mere fact is interesting to me. <laughs> to what do you ascribe the success of the venture? I think in Pretoria we have succeeded to create an atmosphere where people can talk freely. And that is robust and uh, confrontational and uh, openly. And that refers to the concept of opgesprek. And that is very important because, and, and we're still trying to get this going here in the Western Cape, but um, in Pretoria, I think we've succeeded in that because I invite a speaker and he or she chooses the theme, introduce a topic, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, controversial topic or of interest at the time, and then the, the, the audience then interact with the speaker. When you say it's an opportunity for people to speak openly, mm. are you referring to the fact that South Africa, <coughs> excuse me, South Africa comes out of a background of uh, narrowness, narrow-mindedness, control, or are you referring just to a natural human social thing that people or reluctant to speak freely and openly? I think it, it is more that people must get used to or must have the opportunity to discuss with what they would call or think of as intellectuals or academics where they can talk to them directly. I think more that. Whereas there's a, there's a big difference with, uh, in the hierarchy of academics and people so-called that's knowledgeable and, and so that you feel, okay, you know, they know, which one would often find in, in this kind of discussions that you have a 
a person having an interview with a writer or a, or a poet or whoever and discuss it up front there, there and the audience only listens. And we've succeeded in that, that the, I think. Whereas the person come and introduce a topic and it's open to anyone in his own or her own way of talking, and that not knowing necessarily the alphabet of an academic world or the alphabet of an intellectual world in their own language interact there. So and there's does, time. And does that happen? That happens. In Pretoria, it happens very much successfully. Why do you keep referring to Pretoria when, in fact, you have such meetings in the Western Cape? I think it is less so here. I think we've often discussed that since we're here. But then I must say, Pretoria, we've done that for 20 more years regularly. So there is already a culture. And not that it is the same people coming. Because I wouldn't know before an evening how many people would appear. I never know. And it's never the same grouping of the people that come. So we have a feedback on that. We call it a terugberg on a topic. And people may talk about that. I find it, um, I do not want to emphasize that too much, but we have been started here for say three, four years ago, even here in this house and a few other places in Stillenbosch. And I have committed myself in Wellington at the Breitenbach Center now to do that every second month, last year regularly and this year as well. So it, it's we still need to create that hospitality where people can come, anyone, you know, not think, oh, it is too philosophical for me. I can't think about it. That's the thing I would think. Okay. Um, do people, well, Sorry, you have answered my question. People clearly, in significant numbers, take advantage of this opportunity that you have created, the platform that you have created. So therefore, you, as an intelligent observer, must have a reasonable idea of what the Afrikaner is looking for. Why do they come to your meetings? Afrikaner likes to talk. <laughs> they like interaction. They like socializing. Uh, if I may say the Afrikaner, it's difficult to say the Afrikaner. Um, yeah, they like to talk and they like to, they, they tackle topics, but they would like to have it in an environment where they feel safe. Because I've often seen that when I would ask a speaker, may we, may we tape this, may we record this, then often the speaker is a bit hesitant and then the gespreksgenote, um, the, the people that come, are also then inhibited. Mm. So I would always have it mixed with hospitality of food and drink and talk because it's not something we eat and drink and stop and then there's a talk. We eat and drink, the waiters serve and the talk is going on. So it's a very relaxed atmosphere. That's why it's called kafir, philosophic kafir. Well, let's, let's shift weight uh, onto another foot. Uh, I picked up this phrase out of 
one publication associated with your activities. And the phrase was a reference to the Afrikaner as a track fork, namely a nation engaged in a track. Hmm. Is that a fair assessment? And if it is, what's this track? From where to where? Well, that, that is a historical thing, I would think, um, which I would not like to comment too much about because I do not know enough about it. But I think peoples have migrated in the world. Uh, very much so. It could be that we refer to the Great Trek at the time that was something from the Cape Colony up to the North via Natal and so on, which I'm not knowledgeable about. But, um, yeah, I think uh, people move if it is not comfortable or hospitable. I think worldwide that is a... That is a uh, something you, that happens, yeah. So are you saying that... I, I'm not sure that I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that description of people on the move mm -hmm. uh, is true for the English, mm -hmm. uh, for Americans for the French, and mm. so on and so on. Mm. I think, personally, and I don't want to take your job here, yeah, sure. I, I think there is something in the spirit of the Africana that is still reaching out for a kind of promised land. And I want to ask you, is do you think that Afrikaans as a language and the Afrikaner as a national group, do you think their future is certain and assured or do you think it's threatened? Well, I think as a, as a group, Afrikaner as a group are very much criticized, I mean, and uh, uh, suspicious because of our political history, uh, as if there were no English-speaking people at the time in apartheid. You know, it is, everything is focused on the Afrikaner as if that was the creation of apartheid. So, um, yes, and I think being an adventurous kind of people, uh, we would not sit and suffer, we'll move. You know, that, that's what we will do. You know, we won't feel sorry for ourselves, we'll move if, if it can't. As far as the language is concerned, uh, yes, very much so. I mean, that in my, it's very much so threatened, I would say, because in my time, um, there is very, very few primary schools where my grandchildren, well, none of them are in primary schools, in, but I have a great-grandchild that can go to an Afrikaans-speaking primary school in 23 in South Africa. Now that's so that is a threat. That's similar to the situation with the University of Stellenbosch in the, the, the town that we are having this conversation. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Stellenbosch University used to be um, an academic 
institution of Afrikaner learning and language. We know, we know that it is no longer exclusively that. The medium of instruction has largely shifted from Afrikaans to English. How do you personally, as an Afrikaans person, feel about that? Well, um, I can cite two incidents that relates to me personally. I have uh, two grandsons. One lives in Limpopo. He's matriculating this year. And the other one is third year now um, legal studies. And the one in Limpopo, I tried to convince him to come and study in Stellenbosch next year. So he said, oh man, yeah, my English is not good enough. Interesting. So that my English is not good enough. So that's a perception. And that was not at all a political comment. I think my English is not good enough to study. So it's an Afrikaans It's an Afrikaans university. Yeah, so there's a perception amongst uh, yes. them. Second, the other one, uh, legal and philosophy is interested in. So I was uh, trying to get him more involved in philosophy than legal. So I personally phoned the philosophy department myself and asked and say, is it possible that a youngster can come and study philosophy on Stellenbosch who is not so fluent in, Af in, in English? And I had the straightforward answer, no. Would not be possible. That is a department of Diergenaar and Andre de Toy and other people. Lame, let's leave it there. Thank you very much for talking to us. Right. So now here's my view. Lame says Afrikaners come together because they like to talk. I think, clearly, it's much more than that. Like many or most creative originators, Lame plays down the significance of what she does. It's not that people simply like to talk. It's what they talk about. That's what matters. There's another thing. I confess I'm disturbed by Lama's evasion when we talk about owning the moral guilt for apartheid. She says, it wasn't only the Afrikaners, and there's even a hint of resentment in her tone. Well, this is true, of course, but it's not a strong argument. Later, in an unrecorded conversation, Lame says that Afrikaners gave up power. They stepped away from government. They handed over control and stewardship of South African society to those whom they had previously locked out. Now this, she argues, stands as Afrikanerdom's great act of recompensation and restitution. There could scarcely be greater. So this is a strong argument. It bears thinking about and being taken seriously. So for now, 
I leave you with that. It's time to move on. Uh, the road beckons. <laughs> <laughs>